the free for all roundtable. Round two. Pavin Bratch is a serial entrepreneur in marketing, tech, and real estate development, and a part-time farmer. Michelle Morrow is a children's music teacher, among many other things, including a frequent contributor on this radio station. And Karima Sad is a Toronto lawyer and independent journalist. Good morning to you all. Good Monday morning. Good morning. Morning. So uh, we have this story that's been floating around out there. I don't know where these things come from sometimes, but I mean, I guess there's a point to it if you do the math. Uh, and that is that uh, there's an argument being made here that millions of Canadian salaried workers, so if you get paid a set salary, pick a number, $50,000, that because this year there's an extra day of work on the 29th of February, because it's a leaf year, a leap year, not a leaf year, a leap year, <laughs> that somehow uh, they're calling it wage theft. Uh, I, I, you know, the whole leap year thing is a kind of a quirk of the calendar and I think of the lunar cycle or whatever it is. But are we are we to take this up seriously as an issue or are we to say, hey, suck it up, folks. Once every four years, you work this extra day and other years you get an, you know, kind of an extra day to do something else when it's on the weekend. I'll start with you, maybe uh, Pavan. Yeah, well, listen, I've, I've been an employer for 34 years and it's funny that this I've never kind of dealt with this issue before. I, I, you know, I've had lots of salaried people and continue to, and and I do think that, you know, it's not appropriate. I mean, we salaried folks have the benefit of being able to take days off and time off. Uh, we're not docking them. We're not docking their salary, et cetera, for, for time away. Uh, so I think that whole time side of things fades a bit. So I, I don't think it's appropriate for this, uh, for, for uh, salary employees at all. So say you, Michelle. It's, I'm saying with Paulin, it's something I've never thought about. When you break it down, the numbers, I'm like, oh, this could be a big chunk that people feel they're missing out on. But at the same time, there's when you're a salaried employee, there is that flexibility that you're given um, with, like Paulin said, being able to take time off or being able to come in late or leave early, that sort of thing, if you need be. If people really did feel as though they were very hard done by, hopefully they have a relationship with their employer. They could say, hey, you know, I'm working this extra time. It's taking me away from X, Y, and Z. What can you offer me in exchange? But as someone who's only, I've only ever been paid hourly, the thought of being salary is like heaven to me. So I would be like, yes, I can work an extra day, but I'm probably not what the union, I'm probably not a great union member in that respect. Karima, is there any legal, do you think there's any sort of legal case to be made here? Because this is one of the things where somebody could take this to court and you end up with one of these surprising court decisions that says, yes, indeed, somehow this is quote unquote wage theft. Uh, is that something that you think is likely when you just think about it as a lawyer with your lawyer's hat on? Well, with the caveat that I, I don't practice that particular area of law, I think it would it initially come down to the contract, right? What does this contract for the salary say? Does it stipulate number of days? Is it just the dollar amount? Um, and, you know, you might get traction if you have several employees within a company who band together and say, well, collectively together, this is what we are missing out on. Um, so there's strength in numbers in that respect. So maybe, but like, the other panelists, I've never really thought of this. Yeah, no, I hadn't either. I mean, I and I don't place, I think we've spent enough time talking about it, quite frankly. Uh, a related kind of matter, just in that it relates to the workplace and how people work and so forth. Uh, 41 companies recently tried out a four-day work week and all 41, so the story says say they would make it permanent. And I want to just focus us in, there's many things you could talk about here, but I want to focus us in on one thing, which is, I know maybe one of those things that only people who've been in public life or business 
people like me uh, focus on, which is, you know, can we get the work done? Can we get the work done and be as productive as we are today? Because people think, oh, this productivity thing can only be talked about by conservatives and hard-nosed business people. But in fact, it relates to the wealth of the country and how much we can be competitive and how much we can get jobs and investment here, which everybody needs. Uh, so do you think this four-day work week would actually be good for that, uh, you know, starting with you, Michelle? Or do you think it would be something that maybe would make it more difficult for us to be competitive and to, to sort of get the work done, as it were? No, I think it could 100% work. If you look at the studies that have been done, even cutting back on a four-day work week, and it is specified that it's not necessarily four days. It could be that you work five days um, early from to mid-afternoon, or you work mid-afternoon to late the evening, just with that bit of flexibility. And productivity has not dropped. I think we have a fear of people being like, oh, they want an extra day off, those lazy millennials. You know what I mean? I feel like there's still that stigma to it. Versus if you give, say, hey, I will. You, if you work within this allotted hours and you get that work done, you can clock out early everyone that I know would work hard to get it done on time. I think productivity does not affect it at all. I think we're just scared of how it looks. Pavan, you said, you know, earlier on, and we introduced you, of course, as a, an entrepreneur, which you are, is this something you think we could adapt to and, and, and adapt successfully? Or is it something that is a risk if we moved on a widespread basis to this kind of four-day work week? Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I don't know if, if the same amount of output was on offer uh, when they talked about uh, reducing the number of days worked. You know, I, I have to disagree. I, I don't agree with it uh, as an entrepreneur, as an employer. Uh, you know, Canada Canada has a significant productivity issue, which means, you know, basically defined as how much we put out per hour worked. And uh, right now, our nation, our great nation ranks at the bottom of every, pretty much every major OECD country. We're just above Turkey. I've looked at the numbers just recently. And, and, and worse, on top of that, we are in Canada alone declining at an unprecedented level. So we're producing far, far, far less, and it's diving. Uh, so I think it's a terrible idea. Right now, uh, you know, adjusting. If you think about it, if you if you had a, an office, a business manager, and the business manager was there four days, now you have to hire another business manager to be on site, uh, which increases your total costs. Uh, and you know, so there's no there's no change to that. I mean, it, it's gonna it's gonna drive the budgets up higher. Now, the only exception I can see to this is kind of in the context of a broader shift away from the need for as many people working because of AI and technology. That is something that we're going to have to grapple with because it's it's not theoretical anymore it's real and it's going to impact people at all levels not just clerical but right through to lawyers and all kinds of uh, white collar typical white collar jobs so so i you know i mean there may be an argument for that as as society shifts but gen in general i would say it's a, it's a big no for me all right and last but not least uh weigh in um well i i think that right now um people <laughs> there's you wake up, you go to work, you do your commute, you know, there's errands in the day and the days are short um, and rent is high, mortgages are high. And so one of the biggest complaints I hear is that there's just no free time. Um, so I, I am mindful of what Michelle said, that, you know, this doesn't necessarily mean four days that can be reconfigured in, in different ways. Um, but I think that people do need time to uh, self-actualize. Uh, and th this, if it has worked so far in this pilot project, um, I don't think it's something should be dismissed out of hand. Um, ideally, in, in a perfect society, we, we do have free time for ourselves.
Uh, that is important. And I would just say, moving on from this, uh, that we can't discount what Pavin said as well, though, because uh, people may think productivity is some other egghead concept or a concept dreamt up by hard-nosed, you know, kind of right-wing business people. But the fact is, it relates very much to the wealth of the country. And you may say, well, what does the wealth of the country have to do with anything? It has to do with our ability to pay for, you know, all the health care and the education, all the things that we so much value as a part of our citizenship. So this is something that, you know, shouldn't be dealt with lightly, and I don't think it is. Um, so speaking of... Uh, challenges we have. The ERs, it's constantly sort of written that the ERs are full of people who don't have anywhere else to go and who show up there with minor ailments and are sort of clogging the ERs up to the point where, as I described them earlier, they are quite a bit of a circus. Uh, the STAR went out and asked a, a number of the hospitals in the GTA, and they came back, uh, the hospitals did, and said, no, the people are, who are in the ERs belong here. Uh, and when I had an ER doctor on this morning, an emergency room doctor, she said that, you know, part of the problem is that the other channels available to people aren't available. So, for example, you might have a family doctor, but if you're having a, some kind of pain at that moment, that doctor is not going to see you for two weeks, which doesn't really help you much. Have we been sort of spending too much time, you know, blaming the patients, as it were, as opposed to really looking hard at the, uh, at the system and saying, how is it falling short in terms of uh, providing the right range of options at any given moment for people? I'll start with you, Pavan. Yeah, I would say every, every day we, we shouldn't be blaming the patients. We have to look at the system for sure. Uh, you know, John, I've been innovating in the healthcare sector of late, so so I have uh, learned a great deal. And, and, and frankly, you know, when you read the article, the research that just came out, it says that no, the hospital networks, uh, you know, the, the emerges are dealing with legitimate issues in the majority of cases. But the, first and foremost, there are some hospitals, for example, in Hamilton Health Sciences, where close to a quarter of the visits are, in fact, non-critical. So there are some notable exceptions. And 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 certainly, I think looking at co-locating urgent care centers near those uh, sites probably makes a lot of sense. But I think the most critical point that's being made is that the problem remains that the ERs are jammed because there's nowhere to send the patients inside of the building upstairs to, to the main wards. And so why are those wards full of people and patients? Ford's done some pretty innovative things in terms of forcing people to, to move into seniors care or, or long-term care where it's appropriate. But the fundamental issue remains that our primary care system is broken in Ontario. We've got, uh, and and as a result, you know, we've we're generating uh, so many folks with such severe, you know, multiple chronic diseases that they're ending up in hospital, and we're failing to prevent, you know, the progression of diabetes, which is now, you know, just doubled. Our numbers have doubled in Canada since 2020. So we've got significant issues ignoring the baby boomers that are coming on stream. So I think it it has to go back again to a, a whole look and primarily pardon the pun at primary care and prevention uh, that's 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 what's causing people to become much sicker and filling up our hospitals and jamming up the ER so that that would be my thought Karima I think what uh, you know Pavel's referring to there is something we do which is we focus today on emergency rooms and tomorrow on the doctor shortage and the day after that on something else and in fact if we, we've got to take a look at the whole system because every you know it's the old hip bone connected to the thigh bone it's all connected together and if there isn't enough uh, if there aren't enough hospitals beds, then the emergency room is going to back up. And, and you know, if there's not enough long-term care, then people are staying in hospital beds. And we don't look seem to look at it that way very much at the time when even when we're debating this on radio or anywhere else. That's absolutely right. Um, like the human body, it's all interconnected. Yeah. And uh, if, if we are focusing on one thing to the exclusion of the others, we're missing the bigger picture. I think this is a really important story because it counteracts 
the messaging that may otherwise dissuade people from showing up, um, which could lead to worse results, right? If, if someone talks themselves out of going to the ER uh, and, in fact, their situation deteriorates. Um, so in that sense, it's important for people to know that, uh, that there is a problem, um, but the problem isn't necessarily just people showing up for frivolous reasons. Hey, Michelle, do you think we're ever going to get to the bottom of this? Because I know I've been around you know, politics and public policy for a long time, and this has been debated throughout that entire period of time in the way that I was describing, which is we have one day a doc, uh, an emergency room debate, and the next day a doctor shortage debate, and the day after that hospital bed debate, but never do we sort of have anybody that tries to look at the whole thing and say, what fundamental changes, perhaps along the lines of some of the things Pavan talked about, do we actually have to make to actually make real change and, and solve some of these problems, which are only going to get worse because of what Karima said about the baby boomers? Yeah, I think I think this needs a, a, a larger scale. And I, I realize that it, Ontario is a massive province and there are so many um, hospitals and family care physicians and that sort of thing. So it's a huge network to try to, to, try to manage. But I think having someone with more of an administrative look and saying, okay, so this is where we're getting an influx of patients. We need to make sure we have these sort of beds available. These are the beds that are coming up. We keep on talking about people aging into the system. Um, let's. We know this is happening. It's not a surprise that people are going to get older. So perhaps we need to look into long-term care and building up those facilities ahead of time. I feel like we are very reactive within our healthcare system. But, the, uh, but I know what you said about, are we always going to be talking about this? And part of me says yes, but on a positive side, because we care about the system. We don't want to lose it. Canadians are very proud of their healthcare system and having and wanting to improve it, I don't think is a bad thing. I just wish we had the ability to prove it, improve it as opposed to just talk about it. Yeah, well, that's that's exactly right. Thank you very much to Pavan Bratch and Michelle Morrow and Kareem Asad for a good discussion as always. Catch the roundtable, round one at 745, round two at 845. Weekday mornings on more in the morning. News Talk 1010 Toronto.